For all you podcast listeners, we've negotiated a simply amazing deal with Farrier's Journal. That's a journal that comes in seven different languages. If you sign up through sjcurtisbooks at gmail.com, you'll get a free copy. You'll sign up to have a subscription, but there's no commitment on your part. You can come out at any time. This is a brilliant deal. Take it up. Email sjcurtisbooks at gmail.com. You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Hoofcare Essentials Foundation partner, Nida Supply Corporation. My podcast with Lena Solien is the first time that I have interviewed somebody from Norway, although it has been a regular place that I've given clinics over the years. Uh, We do the usual thing of uh, a mixture of both personal conversation about how Lena got into shoeing, but also some technical stuff. And of course, being in Norway, a lot of which is covered with snow for, well, 50% of the year, and how farriers help horses to cope with that sort of environment, how they give grip and purchase. Lena says her first lesson in anatomy was, was a farrier drawing the hoof in sand and she was intrigued by the farrier of her horse and and that's how she got into shoeing. Of course technically we we cover hot and cold shoeing, Lena does both, and we look very closely at snow pads and studs as a means of securing the horse's footing. She has some observations on hoof growth as it's affected by the cold winter And the main reason I met Lena is she was my point of contact when I was invited to speak at the Norwegian Farriers Association annual conference. So, of course, I wanted to question her about being a secretary to an association and a conference organiser. So I've come to Oslo, Norway, uh, to present six lectures at the Norwegian Farriers Association Conference, and I've had the opportunity the evening before the conference starts to speak to the Norwegian Farriers Association Secretary, Elena Solien. Thank you for doing this podcast. My pleasure. All right, well, just tell me something about Norway. Well, um, it's a country up north. Obviously, north in Europe, uh, and it's about uh, it's north of Denmark and I would say west of Sweden. Uh, a long country, long coastline, uh, and if you go to go from the southern part of Norway up until north, it's the same distance as if you would go. You would end up, I think, down in Italy. So it's uh, long distance. Long thin northerly country, and the, yeah. and the uh, the very north of it. Is in the Arctic Circle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's above. It's so above. you get the, yeah. the the midnight sun in the yeah. summer, but the... totally darkness in the winter. Yeah, and yeah. not so many people. I think we're about four million, five five million, yeah. five million people. I think five million people. Yeah. Lots of oil. 
lots, lots of, of oil, lots, lots of, of hydroelectric wind. power, yeah. yeah, lots of wind, and electric cars. That's a new thing. So, so yeah. So the world being short of electric, Norway is in a strong position, isn't it? Yes, definitely. Yeah. So, and about I think I saw a number that ten years ago they assumed it was one hundred and twenty-five horses, thousand horses, and twenty-five. So something around there. So. Not a big horse country, though. No, but there's, that's still a high proportion of the people. Of course, I think one of the, the problems is that for, I don't know how many months of the year, it's quite difficult to ride them outside, isn't it? No, we still go in the winter time. Do you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we do. Well, you're a tough race. I know. No, that. it's just everyday life. It's just how it is. So you can't stay in all winter. You just have to use the opportunities that, that yeah. are there. Yeah. Well, we're going to showing later of, of horses in snowy conditions, mm -hmm. and we'll see how you cope with that. Uh, so, so what type of horses are there here in Norway? I would say all types of horses, everything. You get uh, from ponies, Shetland ponies, to competition ponies, up to dressage horses, to jumping, to western horses, everything, I think. Icelandics? Yeah, lots of Icelandics, they're really popular. Yeah. Yeah. And I've actually been racing here. I think it's the only racetrack in Norway, isn't it? Uvevol? Yeah. yeah, that's the one. Yeah. A figure of eight track. The flat horses go on the oval. Yeah. And the steeplechasers or hurdlers go the sort of X that makes it a figure of eight. Yeah, I think I so. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I remember going uh, in the middle of winter, I was frozen. Lord only knows how those horses cope, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, it was the coldest I've ever been going racing. So the, the obvious question, Lena, is um, how did you get into farriery? Well, uh, not the easiest way into it, actually, uh, but I was, uh, for as long as I can remember, I've always loved horses. It's been a passion from when I was born. Um, remember playing with horses when I was a little girl. It was always about horses. If it was possible to ride a horse, I would. So quite early, I was uh, destined that I I wanted to work with horses, uh, and uh, I saw that farriery would be an option for me to have like a normal job. Uh, so wait a minute. Did I hear you say that farriery would be an op option to have a normal job? Yeah, I think so. I actually think so. If you compare it with uh, other businesses in regarding horses, you know, you have to work every hour of the day, early, late. But if you run a farrier business, you can actually do it between eight and four, if you're structured then. Uh, and I am. <laughs> so. Um, well, you are, you are the secretary of the association, so you should be organized. Yeah, I am. You're an organized person. So now, um, I heard that um, before you got into farriery, you were an interpreter, but not the sort of interpreter most of us think of. In other words, you weren't translating, for example, somebody like me speaking in another country. You were actually dealing with people who had a loss of senses. Yeah. So can you explain what you were doing? Uh, I was an interpreter for deaf and deafblind people, so I used sign language. And I did that for like a decade, I think. Uh, and the reason why I came into that uh, profession was uh, when I was at school uh, and you were going to choose your further education, I told my supervisor that I wanted to be a farrier. Uh, but the thing is that my grades were actually, I could choose anything actually. 
And he said, since your grades are on the top, you should go to the university. You should head in that, that direction. Did he actually say you were too clever to be a farrier? Yes, he did. Actually, did. I'd but like he, to meet he, that person. He knew nothing about horses. He knew nothing. He just, that was a voca vocational uh, education, you know. And that has been for a long time seen as a, a lesser education, some not, not as fine. No, know? it is all over the yeah. world. And, and actually, of course, in some countries, it's viewed as even worse than that. Yeah. You know, you can't get much lower than being a farrier. So I'm not surprised. I no. just don't know how we ever change it. We try to change it now in Norway, in Norway actually. It's um, quite high on the political agenda. But uh, anyway, that was the ad advice that I got. And uh, I was, uh, well, my mom would, wouldn't believe this, but I did what I was told for once. Uh, <laughs> so I went that, down that road and I knew for sure that I would not be in an office job. I do want to do something. And then I figured, well, if I do this interpreting, I am actually doing something with my hands. I am physical, I'm meeting people. Uh, and it was a job I truly loved, uh, but I never stopped thinking about this fire thing. Uh, and where I live, uh, it's quite far away from other people. It's up in the woods and getting a farrier is not easy. Uh, and I've had own horses, my own horse since I was 13, 12, 13. Uh, and he was shod, of course, um, but, uh, I, ch um, I got a new farrier and the changes in my horse, I, I could not notice. He got new hooves. It was just a new horse. So this is a positive experience then? Yeah, really positive. Yeah. Um, but then this farrier, he moved away, of course. And then there I was. Do I shoe my horses badly then by other farriers or what do I do? Uh, so then the thing was, we removed the shoes from my horses and he showed me how to trim a horse. And there you go. And my first anatomy lesson was outside the stable, on the ground, you know, in the sand. He used his rasp and just drew that uh, hoof capsule and the coffin bone inside it and showed me this is the relationship between them. And that was the first ever uh, I knew of anatomy of the hoof of the horse. And I still remember it, it made a huge impression to me. Well, I went into this interpreting thing uh, and did that for a time. Yeah. Uh, and then there was, as you know, we don't have any farrier schools. No. So uh, I searched the internet and uh, then I came across uh, this advertising about, do you want to be a farrier? Uh, and I thought, yes, I do. <laughs> and it was a course of six weeks over a period of two years, I think, where you do one week, uh, every now and then and when you don't know you don't know so I went into it and uh, started uh, and where was that course run here in Norway in Norway yes okay. and there was nothing wrong with the course the course was actually quite good I think but it's just not enough not at all but you don't realize that when you're in the middle of it um, so I realized that when I was done I just yeah you started shooting some horses mostly my own and then you just feel like you're stuck. You don't get anywhere. You feel, you really know that this is not enough. And I had a university degree. I had a bachelor, a bachelor actually. So you learn something about studying. And I just knew that this is not it. Um, so I was about to give in, to just give the whole, give up on February. Uh, but then I just, 
I met the right people and was invited to come along with farriers uh, on a regular basis. Uh, and after a couple of years, I did my exam uh, and I passed it uh, with, uh, with distinction, actually. Uh, and it was just a lot of uh, blood, sweat and tears. <laughs> And who ran this exam? Was it your association? No, no, it's uh, it's a public exam. It's by the uh, by the governments, I think. Yeah. So, so your government has an exam for farriers. Yes. yes. And but do, doesn't have a school for farriers. No, we doesn't. We do. We do have a system, but we don't have a school. So, um, uh, how do I explain this? And it's just been renewed the whole system, but we do have. One, you go one year to school, but it's not farrier school, it's just agriculture. You do everything, every animal and plants and everything, and you learn nothing about shoeing a horse, nothing. And then from that year, you go out in three years of an apprenticeship. And there's no, no school, no theoretical, nothing. So you, you are... Um, I mean, I, I find it quite bizarre. A, a country as advanced as... Norway yeah. seems incapable of doing this. Now, I know there's, there's a population problem. You said about the population of Norway is only four and a half, five million, 125,000 horses. or And so, so there's not a lot of farriers and therefore there's not a lot of farriers needed. And I think that is a problem with schools. Other small countries, population-wise, have exactly the same problem. And governments don't want to pay, for example, for Norwegian students to go to Sweden, do they? And no. No, they won't do that. And it, I mean, the same thing's happening in the UK, that Scotland no longer has a school, but because they have a government um, that is uh, autonomous, they don't want to pay to have farriers trained in England. No. Which is causing all sorts of problems for farriery. In Scotland, so it's so it's a similar sort of thing, and I think I think you have a similar population to Scotland, yeah. you know, and and uh, it's a big problem. You know, there's some countries in this world that have more farrier schools, and they know what to to do. I mean, I was told recently that um, I think America has ninety farrier schools. Yeah, um, but those are mostly private, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. they are. Uh, UK has three. I think I think Sweden, with half the po- or a third the population of the UK, has four. Yeah, they've got four, yeah. But you never considered going over there to study then? Or is that No, I didn't possible? know about I didn't know about it. And at this time when I was uh, was starting this I had uh, I had married, I had kids, I uh, you know, so it was a difficult situation. So when this course came up with like, do you want to become a farrier and you can do it like yeah. part time, it it was perfect for yeah. me. Except that you <laughs> you don't. It's not the standard you want. No. But anyway, not. If if we move on and you you got through that and you you you've got skills, and then you obviously you didn't do this just to do your own horses. You did it mm. to build a farrier business. So how did you go about that? To build my business, you mean? Yeah. Well, it, that just happened, I know. I don't know. It just, People just heard, just by word of mouth. Yeah, and when, you, when you'd own a horse and you live in an area, you know people, right? And you just start shooting their horses. So I got friends that I shoe horses for and, yeah, just people around me. So, yeah. And, and how does that work out, shooing for friends? Fine. Does it? Yeah. 
Yeah, I was always told that was not a good business prospect. Oh, I don't have a problem with it. No, no. no Long may that continue then. Yeah. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions. Yeah. So I want quick fire answers. Okay, we'll try. Snow or rain? Oh, snow. Snow pads or studs? Studs. Icelandic or thoroughbred? Icelandic. Hot or cold chewing? Both. I want to give you one. <laughs> okay, so you, obviously leading on from that, so you both hot and cold chew, yeah? Yeah. Because I think there's a lot here that um, just cold chew, don't they? Yeah, a lot. Most, I think. And I think people are surprised that in the UK, where it's predominantly hot chewing now, apart from the racing industry, actually only 50 years ago, it would have been predominantly cold chewing. Yeah. But I think... Gas fires, etc. Yeah. But I think there's, all, there's also a thing here about the health and safety, isn't there? Yeah, of course, like in every country, I think. But uh, no, but more so here. <laughs> yeah, it might be. I'm not sure, but or it's, Scandinavian it's quite. Also. Yeah, yeah, it's a Scandinavian thing, but it's quite possible to hot shoe with a, in yeah within that uh, regulation. Yeah, it's possible. So, do you have a truck or a van? Or uh, a van, yeah. Okay, and you have a gas fire in the back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do. And so, when do you hot shoe and when do you cold shoe? Well, it depends on on the horse, the stable, the facilitations, and how much do I have to change the shoe, um, those sort of things. And in winter time, if I do a reset, I would never heat up the shoe. With studs and everything, you just, I don't know. Okay. See, for me, when people... Because I, I spent the first 10 years of my career cold chewing. Yeah. And then I learned to hot shoe. And when people people get this bee in their bonnet that one's better than the other, and it, that's just untrue. It's just, yeah, I don't think you, that is... No, you, you just select true. the right yeah. time. It's it's just... I, I see it as another, another tool in, in your van, actually. It's just I can choose what is most appropriate at the time for that horse, for that kind of job. I can do both. And I think that's... I don't see the reason why if, well, if I have made the shoe to fit um, in, in the autumn, I, I pay extra attention to the shoeing on the first winter shoeing because I know that I will probably reset those shoes at least one, maybe two, and for some horses during the whole winter. Yeah. And if I do it properly the first time, I, it would save me so much time during the winter, I can just whip it off trim it down to where it's supposed to be and then just nail it back on. And that's really fast. And there's so much to uh, talk to you about winter and the climate. For example, is hoof growth really slow here in the winter? Is it noticeably slow? Yes, I think it is. It depends. Some horses you don't notice, but I think that in December, January, it does slow down. Yes. Yeah. Well, there has been a scientific paper showing that, and I think most farriers think that anyway. But I was just thinking of the extremes here, that if ever it was going to show up, it would be... Yeah, yeah, very... I think you see that, because I, I don't have a problem. In the winter time. I don't get stressed if a horse, if, I, if the shoeing cycle is six weeks, I do not get stressed if they get, go like seven or eight weeks, because I know that it will be okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so tell me, what's the coldest you've ever hmm. um, shod a horse in, in Norway? Well, um, 
I'm getting older, so <laughs> I get more and more. Uh, before, I remember I used to say that, oh, minus 15 Celsius, though, is uh, that's the maximum limit. But minus 15 Celsius, um, what is that? Is that round about zero in Fahrenheit? Is it? I don't know. No, no, well, I have to translate because we have a big American Well, I would listener. have to Google I've, it, you know. No, I think it's about zero. It's cold. It's freezing. Yes. Cold. But we, we do get temperatures down to minus 30. Uh, so, yeah. but that is just, you don't chew outside in that cold. Yeah. But I do not chew at minus 15 anymore because my fingers just, they don't function. So around somewhere between five and 10 degrees in minus, that's the limit if they don't have a, a good facilities with a hot stable. And most people do have stables and, that and they are isolated. The stables, yeah, 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 that's quite, that's normal. Almost everybody does. Yeah. So you get around zero degrees. So that's really nice temperature to work in. So yeah. winter is, it's mostly no problems. Yeah. Well, I think I, I, I did a clinic in, in Sweden one time and it was, I think it was minus 17 and that's cold i felt ill yeah i mean i mean i felt ill yeah and i just couldn't wait to get back to my nice warm hotel <laughs> no no and, i i know the feeling and i was doing a demonstration of glues yeah that won't that won't work <laughs> so no but the problem was i overheated the glue yeah, yeah. Felt, and so it actually uh, went off quicker uh, than i needed because i'd superheated it because i was so worried i thought it'll never go off in this temperature but anyway that that's um, uh, apart from that. Let let's just develop about this uh, about grip and purchase. So, so you have horses that ride out in the snow every day. Yeah. Uh, what do you have to do as a farrier to to help that horse and help that rider? Well, where I live, uh, there is a lot of snow uh, in the southern part of parts of Norway. Norway would be different because they don't have that amount of snow or ice. Uh, but where I live, it is a lot of snow and ice, and we do need both snow pads and four studs, two in the toe and two, in, two at the heels. And tell me what the snow pad does. It isolates, so that, is, so that the snow and ice doesn't get stick to the iron in the shoe, and it's a little movement as well, so we can get those claws. And I'll have to try and get a picture to go out after this podcast, but it, it's like a little rubbery ring that goes yeah. around the inside, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So it's a rim pad. It doesn't cover the hole. No. So. Yeah. And as you say, it moves. Yeah. Because you can squeeze it. Yeah. So it, all the time it's cleaning the snow out. Yeah. Yeah, that's one part of it, and it's also this is isolation part that it's uh, it's hollow. You know. Yeah. It's not one piece of rubber. It's no. hollow. So that's the air, uh, just isolating the snow from the sh from the shoe. Okay. As well. Yeah. And so, as far as the studs are concerned, so you say they have four studs in each foot. Yeah. So how high are these studs? Uh, depends. I usually use eight millimeters or eleven. Eight or eleven. So again, for our audience, that's about a third of an inch to almost a half an inch. Yeah. That's a pretty tall stud, and I, I've seen them. And um, uh, do you ever have horses that compete on ice or snow? Um, you don't know the, where, where somebody on a ski is towed behind or... Yeah, it's, it's, uh, sometimes I, I guess that... Is that just I, people doing it for fun? Yeah, I, but in my area, they actually, they don't do it anymore, but it was quite normal, I think, before to have uh, trotters on ice, on lakes. Yeah. Yeah. 
so they needed quite big studs and then those were bigger than the ones I use now. Well I've actually, believe it or not, um, skied behind a horse yeah. and when you think I'm not very good at skiing <laughs> and I'm, I'm not very good at long reining a horse, it was pretty dangerous. In fact all I could, all, my whole hope was that I came off at a corner and not that the horse stood and I stood still and I couldn't stop but anyway I survived it but it was really good fun. Yeah. Really good fun. Yeah it is. <clears throat> My kids love to do that. So um, so we've covered the, the, the shoeing of the horse a little bit um, in, in, the, uh, in the snow and the ice. Um, but during the, the summer, they don't have those studs in then? No. So it's a bit like your tyres, because your tyres have studs in them. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. Some, some owners do want their studs during the summer as well to get... Yeah, to get grip if they're riding out on the mountains, you know, it can be yeah. really slippery. So, and if there some horses that are used for driving, use studs during the summer as well. But as for the normal average horse, they don't have studs during the summer. And do you ever use um, tungsten here if they're out on the rocks? Um, some, but it's not in a great not extent. Not much? No, no not no. much. No. Okay. I used to have to shoot some horses tungsten. When they did, uh, they used to do, well, seven miles on the roads, which this time I'll translate for you about 11 or 12 yeah. kilometers <laughs> on roads every day. Yeah. And they would get through the shoes. But it isn't just them getting through the shoes. It's giving them that grip, you know, these yeah. were these yeah. tungsten sort of little chips, yeah. you know, and they, yeah. they give great grip. Um, now, I'm here because the Norwegian Farriers Association has got a conference. Mm -hmm. And although you have a committee to organise that conference, you were my point of contact because you are the, the uh, organiser or the secretary. So tell me some of the things that you're confronted by when you organise a conference for farriers. Confronted by what I, what I do, you mean? Or, yeah. Well, I do everything that you don't notice until it's not done, I guess. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's uh, so you you help choose the date and the conference venue. Yeah, um, we have you know in the board we talk about who to invite possible um, speakers and contents and yeah, um, and then it's finding somewhere to be and yeah, just getting everything set. Actually. And Getting farriers that say they're going to come. And that's the hardest part. I know. Yeah. Because it's the same that's the world really over. That's really difficult. <laughs> it's the same the world over, pinning them down. Yeah. And it's happened just a day or two before, then they're just saying, oh, we'll come as well. Do you have an extra space? So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's busy yeah. days coming, it's, leading it's, up to it. This is a common thing that's got yeah. nothing to do with nationality. No. Ethnic origin. It's just farriers. They all do it. Yeah. Everywhere I've ever been, but but you have to deal with that, and um, uh, so we have a we have a conference up at the the new vet school. Is that where we're going tomorrow? Yeah, up at the university. So they've built a new vet school there. Yeah, and they're building a farrier facility, but it's not finished, is it? No, I'd like, no, I don't think it's finished. We'll see it tomorrow then. So we get to have a look, do we? Yeah, we do. Okay. They'll show us around. So we are hoping for a really 
state-of-the-art facilities, aren't we? Yeah, hope, hopefully. No, we'll see. We'll see. We'll have to report back on that. Um, okay, that's about it. You've made it sound very easy to organise a conference, Lena, but I, I know it's, as you say, it's doing all the things that only get noticed when they're not done. Yeah, and it is a lot of work, but it's like running an organisation. Uh, it Yeah, that's just a part of it. And I think it's important that somebody does that job, you know. It's... Of course it is. We need various associations all over the world. We need them yeah. to function, and we need the people like yourself to volunteer yeah. and do the work. And... Uh, I think it's an important important part of democracy as well, uh, especially here in Norway. That is how it works. We have to gather together if we want to make any changes. And obviously we do want to make some changes here in Norway uh, with our educational system and apprenticeship and everything. But it's a long way before we get there. And you have to be able to have an organization that is stable and so that the government, when there is a possibility of making a change, they will know where to make a contact so that we actually can be heard. But you have to be able to be in it for the long run. You can't just say, I want it that way and expect it to happen just the next day because it won't. It won't be. It will take years and years to get somewhere. But somebody has to do the job. It has to start. As I say, the longest journey starts with a single step. Yeah. So that's a little bit of philosophy. And now I'm going to ask you a deep philosophical question. I want to know what is the biggest hurdle you have had to come overcome in your life? And hurdle like an obstacle? Barrier. Barrier, yeah. yeah. Well, I will have to say that uh, I think it would be unfair of me to say that I have any obstacles in my life. Because I have been so so lucky to be born in this century in this part of the world in one of the richest country in the world and as a female even i have been given the opportunity to choose to be a farrier and not even that i can choose my job i have chosen you know to marry i have chosen to have kids and how many uh and i think uh uh, if I were to say that I have obstacles in my life, I think that would be a bit rude to all those people who live very different lives from what we do. Uh, so. Uh, well, that's a very positive way of looking at it, Lena, and I think yeah. I'm glad you are feel that way because there's too many people in privileged positions that still whine. It doesn't. And, al- and this podcast does not like a whiner. No, <laughs> it doesn't always feel like. I don't have obstacles. It's not what I'm saying. It's just I think it's important to remind ourselves how lucky we are. And also in the farrier business, like we have the most amazing job, you know, worked with these incredible animals and we have dedicated owners and it's a luxury animal that we're working with. Most of us, at least I am. It's the horse used to be uh, necessary. Yeah, it's not really necessary no, it's in not the Western anymore. world, is it? No. no, it's not. It's something that people use for pleasure. And we. it's an amazing business to be a part of. Yeah. We're really, really lucky to work with it. Well, you've answered the deep philosophical question in a philosophical way, so I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. And um, you touched on that about um, family. I mean, how do you juggle family and business? Uh, well, I it's not always easy, uh, of course, anybody would know that, uh, but in my daily life I 
don't I try to shoot no I try not to shoot too many horses a day so I can see my kids after school uh, and most of the time I will be there when they get home uh, and then I can go after work again in the afternoon if it's necessary but most of the time it's not I can shoot three to five horses a day and that will make a steady income for me uh, I earn enough money on that so so how old are your children? They are uh, 11 and 13. And are they riding? In not as much as I did, but uh, yes, to, uh, yes, <laughs> they do. Oh, good. So it's carrying on then anyway. Yeah. And of course, you're still then having to shoe even more horses, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. we got five. So, well, I got five. So, so I got to work. <laughs> so you've got a day's work. Yeah. <laughs> Just shoeing your own horses. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of farriers in that position. Yeah. Um, now, I think, um, actually, first of all, I'm going to ask you to say something to me in Norwegian because we have a little bit of fun because uh, a lot of my, the people I interview, English is not their first language. So if you can say for me, Lena, uh, sir, hold your horse still if you want me to shoe it. Uh, well, in Norway, we're so rude that we won't say sir, you know. <laughs> Mister. <laughs> well, we don't even use Mister, <laughs> but... Uh, I would say something like, "Hvis jeg skal skue hesten, så må du få en stå i ro." Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that's politer than it sounds. Ah, uh, I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> getting the message across with it. Yeah, it does. Now, you you told me earlier this evening we only met today, but you did say that you know, and you've said earlier in this podcast about office life and the great luxury of shoeing horses and being outside. But you were actually recently offered a bureaucratic job, weren't you? Yeah, I was. That is actually a result from working as a secretary uh, for the association because I had recently done quite a lot of work for um, our government. In we have, there's been a big renewal of all the um, syllabuses, all the syllabuses, from kindergarten up until you graduate from your further education. Uh, so I had I have had the opportunity to work with that on behalf of this association, and you do get in contact with people, uh, and I worked quite a lot of hours for them. So they wanted me on board. And uh, I've never known of a government offering somebody a job. You must have been very impressive to. Well, uh, or it says a lot about or people not, already working there. <laughs> or it might be that as a barrier, you know how to work hard, and no, I don't want yeah. to go down that road. Oh, I don't know, no. But um. But you turned it down? Yes, I did. Why Why did you turn it down? Well, I do got the best job in the world. <laughs> but you weren't going to have to give up showing, were you? No, but it's the freedom, you know. I wouldn't... It's the freedom of uh, deciding your own day, what it's going to be like, where am I going to work, being my own boss, you know. Uh, and I, I told them that I do see something like that in the future because I think it's good to have sort of an exit, you know, from Ferry. You don't know how long your body's going to take this. And even though I feel fine up to this point, uh, I see myself in when I'm getting older that I might do something like that. But as I told them, I'm, I don't feel that old yet. No. So. <laughs> no, as I say, you're only as old as you feel. Yeah. So, um, well... Lena, thank you. It's been great speaking to you. Yeah, and uh, we'd better go back and see what the other guys are doing. Yeah. And then tomorrow, well, we've got two days of conferences and you and I are going to be busy in different ways, aren't we? I think so. Me speaking and you making sure it all runs 
like clockwork. I'll try to. I'm, I'm sure you'll achieve that. No. All right, well, it's brilliant. Thank you. You too. Well, the conference was in a really state-of-the-art facility, as we were expecting, uh, possibly one of the best lecture rooms that I've ever spoken in. And we went and looked at the new forge, which, as predicted, was yet to be fully kitted out. And more so, they hadn't actually found a farrier to work in there. So I think it's something the vet school needs to get on with, um, because a vet school dealing with so many horses has no farrier I think is lacking something. Uh, the Norwegian Farriers Association is clearly moving ahead and it is influencing government thinking on farrier training so all power to their elbow that they are doing that for their members. I found Lena to be a very positive person who had a great outlook on life uh, and she's also contributing to our craft not just through her work, but being secretary to their association. And she gave me a quote that I thought was quite nice. She chose Farriery over an office job because she thinks it gives her the freedom to deliver, or to decide, I should say, on your own day. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.